Scripture this morning is found in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and that is found in your Pew Bibles on page 775. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of ours as our gift to you. Again, that's Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And let's stand together as we read God's word, if you, if you are able. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Chatham Bible Church where our purpose is to make disciples of Jesus. I'm happy you're here. Happy I'm here. It's a good day at church. We can together look at God's Word. We're going to affirm together what God's Word means to us, what it is. So if we can put that slide up. Let's say it all together. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. This really is special for us to to come to God's word together and learn from God himself. We conclude our series in the book of Jonah today. Uh, Some of you are excited to be done with Jonah. Some of you will miss him. Uh, Last week, we learned about this great revival that happened because of Jonah's preaching in Nineveh. The whole city repented from their evil. They turned to God. They put on sackcloth and sat in ashes and fasted, which was a kind of a traditional way of expressing their sorrow over their sins. Um, You may not know this, but some historians refer to this event as the great hipster revival uh, because of the overuse of burlap. I have several jokes that I'm going to try to hit everybody in the audience, okay? This, this, this was a little risky. 
Did you know that they canceled all the baby showers for a year after the revival because they ran out of burlap to decorate? <laughs> and finally, they had to cancel their Independence Day picnic. Couldn't have any potato sack races because, again, the burlap was all used up on the revival. Thank you for indulging me. I love that we have a multi-generational church, even if I can't make one joke that hits everybody, so I'll, I'll just try to do many jokes and, and try, to, try to hopefully connect to everybody here. At any rate, during the series on Jonah, we've been exploring the depths of God's mercy. And so our topic uh, today is very much about that, about God's mercy. We're going to focus on God's mercy. My outline is pretty simple. We have four parts. Number one, God's mercy experienced by Jonah. Number two, God's mercy explained to Jonah, specifically in the object lesson that God offers to him. Number three, God's mercy extended through Jonah to other people and how Jonah handles that. And finally, God's mercy exemplified or personified by Jesus, God's own Son. Oh, Jonah, right? You get to this part of the story and you just say, Jonah, come on, you preached a message and the whole city, the whole city repented. I mean, who's not excited about that? And, you know, as, as a minister, as a preacher, I mean, how exciting would it be, right, to, to have the city of Hazelwood just come to Christ and everybody is repenting, right, and, and visibly repenting and the government is involved. I mean, how cool would that be? And yet, we find Jonah angry. He's angry. He's angry that it happened, that God let it happen. After running away from God and experiencing God's incredible mercy towards himself, remember, right, God doesn't, ki doesn't kill him. God pursues him. God brings him back. He saves him from the storm. He puts him in the fish and, and then blesses his ministry. All of that has happened to him. And yet, he's angry with God that God is forgiving the pagan Nineveh. Amazing. He's a prophet. He knows God, knows God's message. He knows who God is, and yet he's angry that God did something like that. In verse 1, it says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, if you're using an ESV Bible, English Standard Bible, which I think most of us are using uh, this morning, you should have a footnote there that says, when it says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, literally, it says that it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah that God saved Nineveh. That's really how he thought. Jonah felt that, that God did something evil, that God did something wrong, that God did something unfair and unjust. And so he was angry with God. But lest we focus on Jonah, lest we say, well, what, what a tool, Jonah, right? Let's look at ourselves and say and acknowledge that any time I am angry with God, any time I am frustrated with God, what I'm really saying is that, God, you did something wrong. God, you did something evil. And I'm angry about that. You see, anger is, is a moral emotion. It, counselors tell us that, that when somebody is angry, there's something underneath, right? And when you're angry, you're basically making a moral judgment. And you're saying, what I see here is wrong. 
And I'm angry about that. This is what Jonah's doing. This is what all of us do when we are angry with God. We look at what God did and we say, this is evil. God, you didn't, you didn't do thing, things the way I think you should have done them. And the implication is I know better what you should have done. So this, this arrogance, this anger, this criticism of how God conducts his business, that's what Jonah is doing here. This is what all of us are doing when we're angry with God. Verses 2 and 3, Jonah prays to the Lord. So this is good. He's taken that anger to God. This is a positive thing here. And he says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? I think my should be emphasized here. Isn't that what I thought when I was still in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Lord, please just take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah says, I knew it. I knew it, God. As, as soon as I heard that you wanted me to go to Nineveh, I knew you were going to save them. Because you're this kind of God. You're gracious and merciful, and you're slow to anger, and you're compassionate. He's using this formula that, that the way God described himself to Moses, that every Israelite knew. Of course, that's a description of God that God himself gave to his people. And he's saying, I know who you are, and so I knew that when you sent me to Nineveh, you were going to save them. You're going to forgive them. You're going to be gracious to them. That's why I ran, because I didn't want to be part of that. And now that I see it's happening, now that I see these people coming to you and being forgiven, and they're spared, he's like, I don't want to be a part of this. In a sense, what he's saying, he's saying, over my dead body, is what he's saying. I'd rather die than see Nineveh be forgiven by you. Just, just take my life so I don't have to see it. Now, how does God respond to that? Now, still remember, right, what Jonah is doing. Angry at God, he's saying, God, you're, you're doing something evil. He's saying, I, I try to avoid this, but I couldn't, so I'd rather die than witness what you're doing. This arrogance, right, this criticism of God, this anger, all of that is happening. He's expressing it to God. What does God do? How does God respond? He responds with mercy. I mean, it's amazing. Not, not the first conversation like that he had with Jonah. Jonah's still doing the same thing he's been doing. Yes, there was a change in the stomach of the fish. There has to have been. And yet he's still struggling with the same issues. And God responds with mercy. Verse 4, the Lord says, Do you do well to be angry? God is exploring these issues with Jonah. God is counseling Jonah. The rest of the, the chapter is a therapy session. He's asking these probing questions. He's, he's uncovering these layers in Jonah's heart. Why is God doing that? He's merciful, slow to anger, compassionate, gracious. He wants Jonah to change. He wants Jonah to, to be transformed by God's mercy. All that God has done for him in Jonah is still stubborn, and, and it would be completely understandable if God just gave up on Jonah. And yet God doesn't. He's patiently talking Jonah through his issues. Brothers and sisters, we have a merciful and gracious God. That's who he is. This is, this is God. He's merciful. Mercy is part of him. 
And so he deals with Jonah according to his mercy. Now, who loves mercy here? Have you experienced God's mercy? Anybody here that, that would say, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's mercy? When you respond to me, you encourage me to preach better. Okay? <laughs> In whatever way you want to respond is fine with me. But please respond because we're talking about these issues that are, these are life-giving issues, right? God's mercy gives us life. All of us should testify this morning that I, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for God's mercy. God has been merciful to me. He's been compassionate to me. He's been gracious to me. Now, if you're unfamiliar with God's mercy, if you do not appreciate God's mercy, let me take just a few minutes to tell you about it. God's mercy is a natural mercy. And by that I mean that it comes from His nature. God is by nature a merciful and gracious being. His mercy comes from His character. It comes from from who he is. Jonah is absolutely right to say, I knew you were going to do that because why? Because you are this way. You're gracious and you're merciful and you're, you're slow to anger. He's describing who God is and then making a, a, a logical extension of that into what God would do here. God's mercy is internal. It's not external. You don't have to influence God to be merciful. He's already merciful. That's who he is from, from, from his gut, from his bones, from inside of him he's merciful. God's mercy is a free mercy. It's a sovereign mercy. God tells us in Romans 9, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Who decides who should be forgiven and who should be spared? God decides that. It's, it's a free exercise of mercy. He is merciful by nature, and He directs that mercy to whoever He wants to save and, and pardon and forgive and spare. And so when God saves Nineveh, and Jonah says he did an evil thing, God should have said, if He wasn't as merciful, I do what I want. I, I can forgive anybody I want to forgive. I can spare anybody I want to spare. Because His mercy is a free and sovereign mercy. God's mercy is an active mercy. He doesn't wait for us to ask for His mercy. He's already working. He's already looking to give it to you. We just sang just a few minutes ago, you reached down and lifted us up. You came running looking for us. And now there's nothing and no one beyond your love. That's our God, our merciful God, who doesn't wait. He goes to us, He comes to us, and He helps us before we even know that He is doing that. Have you experienced that? That that active mercy came into your life? From His heart, from His being, it just flowed into your life, and you realized that it was happening as it was happening? God's mercy is a rich mercy. His mercy is rich and His love is great, Ephesians 2 tells us. His mercy never runs out. You know, when you reach for the coffee in the morning and you realize the coffee's gone, have you had that experience? Because last night you decide, ah, I'm just going to take care of it later. But then the morning comes and you come and you reach for that coffee and it's all gone. 
it never happens to God's mercy. There's never a time when God reaches for his mercy and it's all gone. There's always enough. It's, it's sufficient. The great verse in Lamentations 3 tells us the steadfast love of the Lord, what? Never ceases. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Every morning there's a fresh supply of mercy from God's own nature. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faith. Why is his faithfulness so great? Because there's an abundant display of mercy every day in our lives. It's not only sufficient, it's abundant. And finally, God's mercy is a reliable mercy. Because it's part of God's nature and God does not change, his mercy is reliable. It's trustworthy. Because it is free and no one forces God to be merciful. His mercy is reliable. You know, when you get in the car in the morning, you turn the key, and you hear click, 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 and you realize your day is going to go very differently from what you planned because the battery is dead. God's mercy battery never goes dead. It never runs out. You see, there's always that mercy for us. It's always there. It's fully charged, which is why in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it tells us, let us then, let us then, because of all of that, because of all who God is and what he does and what he's done specifically in Jesus and who Jesus is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help, to help in time of need. Anybody here who's experienced that? Anybody here who, who, just, who can say that I know what God's mercy is like firsthand? Maybe I can't describe it with words, but I know it. And not just that I know it, but I feel it. This is important to me. This is part of my life. I know that God is merciful because he's been merciful to me. God's mercy is always directed towards us, his people. And we see that with Jonah. As stubborn as Jonah is, as critical as Jonah is, as angry as Jonah is, those are not good qualities. And yet, God is continuously being patient and gracious and compassionate to him. And so he does with all of us. Yes, I can start this sermon by saying, Oh, Jonah. But I could have as easily started this sermon by saying, Oh, Sergey. Or put your name in there. We're all like that. Runaways, rejecting his mercy, rejecting the possibility of extending that mercy to others. And so God patiently works with us. His Spirit, the Counselor, works with us and uncovers layers and applies the gospel to our hearts and changes us. Now this is how deep God's mercy runs we see it in Jonah's story. We can make parallels with our own lives. Not only does God pursue us when we run from him. That's good, right? We would say, praise God that he does that. When I run, he runs after me. But he doesn't stop there. Not only does he pursue us when we run from him, 
he also forgives us when we turn back to him. That's good too. He pursues us, he finds us, he forgives us. But not only that, he restores us again. He welcomes us back. Talked about it last week. He brings us back to himself. And then guess, guess what he does next? He uses us. That's the, that's the, the arc of, of Jonah's story. He runs, God pursues him. He turns back to God, God forgives him. Then God restores him to the position of prophet again, and God uses him to bring this great revival in Nineveh. But not only that, doesn't, his mercy doesn't end there. As he restores us, as he uses us again to achieve his purposes, he also wants to transform us completely by his mercy. So he will counsel us, he will teach us, he will explain his mercy to us. He wants our whole lives to be affected by his mercy. See, it's not just that I'll forgive you and I'll use you, but yes, I'll pursue you, I'll forgive you, I'll restore you, I'll use you, and I will change you by my mercy. He wants to saturate us with his mercy. He doesn't want any part of our lives to be unaffected by his mercy, so he will patiently work it in, just rub it into us, so we would all be covered in mercy. Now, notice just how patiently and tenderly God is dealing with Jonah, and maybe that is your experience too. God has been patient with me. He's been tender with me many times, counseling me, even when I am stubborn and angry. Patiently and tenderly, God is dealing with us. God asked him three questions to draw out what is happening in his heart. I would imagine that that is what a good therapist would do. He's asking the right questions to draw out the motives, draw out what's going on behind this behavior. And he applies his mercy to Jonah, mercy to change him. God is teaching him. He explains to him what his mercy is like, and he uses an object lesson. So let's look at what God does. As he's asking these questions, he's also showing to him what mercy, his mercy is like. Now, Jonah, remember, he's, he's looking over the city. He is still hoping that God will not spare Nineveh, that God will just destroy them. This, this has a, a feel for something that may have happened uh, to other cities. So Jonah may be thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe something like that, where God is just going to burn it down. And so he wants to be where he can see that. Still hoping. He's still hoping that God, God would not relent and that God would just destroy these pagans. And so he's out on the hill looking over the city, and it is incredibly hot, so he builds a little shelter, but it doesn't quite work. So God graciously appoints a plant. This plant springs up. It's very leafy. It produces a lot of shade and makes Jonah very, very happy. It's not just saving Jonah from discomfort. By the way, in that, that word in the text when it says that, that God appointed the plant to save Jonah from discomfort, this discomfort word is the same as the word evil. He's not just saving Jonah from the discomfort of the heat. He's also saving him from the evil that's in his heart through this object lesson using this plant. So the plan provides shade. Jonah's very, very happy. He's exceedingly happy. As angry as he was with God, that's how happy he is that there's shade for him, that he's comfortable, 
and he can watch God finally destroy Nineveh. But God appoints a worm to eat the plant overnight. This is happening very rapidly. Plant springs up, then overnight a worm eats at the plant, it withers, and then an east, scorching east wind comes, and Jonah almost faints from the heat. Notice he's not leaving that position. Very committed. Because maybe, just maybe, God will change his mind and destroy this city, and he would like to see that. And so as the plant is gone, the heat is unbearable, and Jonah is almost fainting, and now he is very, very sad. He was angry with God, then he was exceedingly glad that God gave him this plant, and now he is very sad that the plant is gone. And then God, continuing his therapy session with Jonah, asks in verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, yes, yes. I do well. In fact, I'm glad you asked because I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die, in fact. This is how angry I am. If you might want to know that, that I'm so angry that I'd rather die than be here right now. As a good therapist, God is getting at the heart of Jonah. See, these are diagnostic questions. You know, it's not God knows he's angry. Of course, God knows he's sad about the plant that he was happy about. Now he's sad. God knows that. But these questions are diagnostic questions. He's asking, what are you angry about? Why does it bother you so much? What are you happy about and what are you sad about in your life? And if we ask those questions to ourselves, if we directed them to us and and ask ourselves, what am I angry about? What am I happy about? What am I exceedingly happy about? And what am I exceedingly angry about? I bet you it would reveal all sorts of things in our hearts, all sorts of evil lurking in our hearts. Well, so let me ask those questions, okay? Let me ask them, what are you happy about? What just makes you happy in life? Just kind of makes you smile, makes you giggle a little bit, and you're saying, this is great. What is it in your life? That when Yadi Molina hits a home run, that's exciting, right? That's good. Makes you happy. When they win, it makes you happy. But are you just as happy when you think about the resurrection of Jesus? Ah, what's a bigger event? Come on. Home run, the resurrection of Jesus, conquering death, conquering our guilt, giving us eternal life. Does that move your heart a little bit? You get into your new car, does that make you happy? You're like, you're comfortable, this is nice, right? Very smooth ride. You know, you get those two weeks before anything goes wrong and just enjoy those two weeks. Thinking, this, this is nice, right? But what about your inheritance in heaven? God says, everything I own is yours. I'm going to give it to you. And Christ, co-heirs with Christ, whatever Christ has, you have. Does that move the needle a little bit? Does, that, does it move your heart a little bit? When you have a great meal, you enjoy that meal. Oh, it's good. The right combination of flavors. A good chef. It's good. Should make us happy. But think about the Lord's table. 
You come to the Lord's table. Is there a happiness in your step when you come to the Lord's table? God has given you himself. This is not just food. He's given you himself to nourish you, to give you everything you need to live this life. When you think about your boss and you think about the acceptance of your boss, the approval of your boss at work, does that make you happy and secure? Does it make you feel good? It should to a certain level. But God himself loves you. We are told again and again in Scripture that God is pleased with you in Jesus. Should that not make us more happy? When you ask those kind of questions, it it, it gets troublesome because you realize where my affections are, that's what I think is important. And so I need God to counsel me. I need God to ask me those questions and say, maybe you're a little too happy about the cardinals. Maybe you're a little too happy about the car. Maybe you're a little too happy about your family or your job. Are you happy about me? And when you get angry, right, you read the, the recent, whatever, the, I, I don't have to be specific about this, any recent news story, does it make you angry? It should. There are some things that definitely should make us angry, but does it make you angrier than God is at sin? So we have to think through it. What bothers me? What makes me happy? Because it tells you where your heart is, and it tells you where you are with God. That's Jonah's object lesson, the plant. And God says, look at the plant, you know. You get so angry about this. You get so happy about this. What is happening in your heart? Let's work through that. Let me teach you about my mercy. What is your object lesson in life? What is God doing in your life through which you learn about his mercy? Because he's doing all sorts of things to teach you, to explain what his mercy is like. I'll give you my example, and there are many examples and many in your lives. When we adopted Evangeline, this is a, this is a great object lesson for us. I've learned so much about God's affection for me. I've learned so much about his mercy, his unconditional love, his steadfastness. All of that, that's an object lesson through the adoption of my daughter. Now, who moved us to do that? Let me tell you, not us. <laughs> you know, it's, you don't adopt children because, because you think you can handle it. You say, let's add this to our mix, Right? God moves you, and God, God provides. God directs you. And, and as we experience that, we're seeing, oh, this is, this is God teaching us. He's showing us his mercy. He's showing us his grace. He's showing us how much he loves us, even as he puts us in that situation. He's showing us how, how much love can change. It's amazing lessons. Is it difficult? Yeah, it's difficult. But I want to learn that. I want God to counsel me through that. So what is God doing in your life that's, that's an object lesson of his mercy? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your finances? Is it at your work? Is it in your neighborhood? What is God doing in your life that teaches you about his mercy? And then we'll look at this mercy not only given to Jonah and then explained to Jonah, but now it's extended through Jonah. This is what God really wants to get at with him. Verses 10 and 11, the Lord says, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night, 
And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God says to Jonah, you have these extreme emotions about a plant you only knew for one day. And by the way, you had nothing to do with it. You didn't plant it. You didn't nourish it. You didn't do anything with it. And it's gone as just one day. But you have these extreme emotions. But you think I shouldn't care about this great city of Nineveh where there's 120,000 people and they're morally and spiritually lost. They don't know their right from their left. These are my people that I love. You don't think I should care about them? You care about the plant? God is saying, if you care about plants so much, maybe at least care about the cattle in Nineveh. You don't even care about the cattle. This is, this is, this is a great object lesson, right? I mean, Jonah has to, has to see it. That I get so upset about the plant. Wouldn't God get upset about these people? Not living with him, not living for him. You see what God is doing with Jonah carefully, tenderly, creating a circumstance in which he can teach him about his mercy. He's forcing him to consider the implications of his mercy that Jonah himself experienced. He knows it. Now there are implications. That mercy has to be extended to others. So have you thought out the implications of God's mercy for yourself? Are you angry that God is forgiving someone in your life? That God is showing mercy to someone in your life that you don't think should get mercy from God? It could be somebody that's as close to you as your spouse. It could be your neighbor. It could be a group of people. And you think about it and you get angry because God might forgive them. Or God might bless someone. And you're saying, God, they don't deserve a blessing. They shouldn't be blessed by God. They shouldn't be forgiven. They shouldn't be spared, and yet they are. It makes you angry. Why does it make you angry? Could it be that you think you are in a special category of people to whom God's mercy actually makes sense to be given? Or to put it differently, you kind of deserve it. Yeah, God should be merciful to me, of course. It makes sense that God will be merciful to me and be gracious to me. Well, as soon as we think of that, right away we have to say, that's not mercy. What you're saying is, God should pay me for my good behavior. God should give me something because I believe the right things. Because I have made the right decisions. But to anyone else, they don't deserve that. I deserve it. That's not mercy. That's payment. It's a deal. Something God owes you. He doesn't owe it to other people, but he owes it to you. Mercy is totally different. Like we, like we said 20 minutes ago, it's, it's free. God can give it to anybody he wants. And none of us should, should be angry when he does that, because that's how mercy works. It comes to people who don't deserve it, including us. So what is your Nineveh? What is a group of people or a person in your life that that you think don't deserve God's mercy. And when God blesses them, that makes you angry. Is it the other political party? Just to let you know, I'm also on Facebook. I don't post much, but I read all your posts, okay? (laughs) 
Is it the people on the other side of the aisle that you just get so angry about? Is it the immigrants? It makes you angry they're here. Refugees, too many of them. The poor to be making better decisions. People of other races. Who, who is it in your life, a group of people or a person, that you think they don't deserve God's mercy? And as you think that, as you say that, and please verbalize that if you feel that, just acknowledge how ridiculous it is to think that. Because mercy is not deserved. Of course God should give mercy to Democrats and Republicans. Of course he should. Because God is merciful. And when we get that mercy is this deep, you know, we've been exploring the depth, when we understand how, how deep it runs, there should be no racism in the church. There should be no prejudice in the church. The church that understands the depths of God's mercy. There should be no elitism in the church. No legalism in the church. Legalism is also based on that same misconception of how God treats people. There should be no judgmentalism in the church. John Chrysostom said, mercy imitates God and disappoints Satan. Whenever we express mercy, whenever we extend it to other people, that of course they don't deserve our mercy, nobody deserves mercy, but when we do that, we imitate God, we act like God, and we disappoint Satan that says, mm, it's not how my people should act. And we say, we are God's people. And so we extend mercy. Because of God's deep mercy, we should be praying, we should be begging that God would cause a revival in North County. We should be praying and begging that God would do that. Because He can. He's a merciful God. There's enough mercy in Him to save everybody in our community. We shouldn't just sit back and wait until we go to heaven and this all gets burned down. But we'll be out of here. That's the attitude of a person who doesn't understand and has not appropriated mercy. If we get the depth of God's mercy, we would say, I don't want to leave because I want to see these people come to Him. And I want to pray, and I want to beg God, I want to plead with Him that in His great mercy, in His sovereign mercy, that He would save them. If God is merciful to us, surely He can be merciful to them, whoever them are in your lives. Because of God's deep mercy, there should be missions. We should not wait by the TV to hear the news that God judged our enemy Instead, we should go proclaim the gospel to our enemy. We should go, we should give, we should pray for the conversion of the nations. There are still people groups in the world today that have not heard the gospel. That's amazing. 2,000 years of, 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 of Christianity, there are still people who have not heard about Jesus. The only way we can explain that is that God's mercy has not affected us deeply enough that we wouldn't fix that. I don't mean we can save everybody, but we can certainly tell everybody. Mercy, if appropriated, if experienced, 
is extended to other people. Then finally, we look at the mercy exemplified by Jesus. And maybe a better way for me to say that would be that this mercy is personified. There's a person that shows us this mercy of God, that shows us how it works, that convinces us that it's real. Jesus, like Jonah, at one time looked over the rebellious city, in his case, the city of Jerusalem. But unlike Jonah, he was not waiting for the city to be destroyed. He was grieving, mourning over the city, crying out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. Jesus is a prophet. He is mourning over a city that kills prophets. Stones those who are sent to it. He was sent to the city. And he was going to die for the city. And yet he's mourning over the city. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Jesus is crying. There's, there's, there's real emotion here. Where does it come from? The bowels of compassion. Deep inside from his nature. He's grieving over the city that would not accept him. Sometime later, the same person, Jesus, looked over the same city from a very different vantage point. From the cross, the tree appointed by God himself. The tree appointed to hold God's son until all the wrath towards that city can be put on the innocent and faithful prophet. But it was not just a physical death that Jesus went through, which would have been enough. I mean, you think about what Jesus went through, but it was much more than we can imagine. Jesus, this personified mercy, took upon himself the wrath of God that the people he loves deserved. When you want to talk about what we deserve, we don't deserve mercy. That's not how mercy works, but we do deserve judgment. And so Jesus, the personified mercy, goes on the cross to take it spreads his arms wide to take as much of the wrath of God as the infinite being can hold. Jonah looked over the city wishing its destruction. But Jesus looks over the city and takes on the destruction of the city upon himself. And he goes not just through physical death, but he goes through hell for us, through the cosmic garbage dump where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's the personified, exemplified mercy of God to his people. And so God's mercy is a natural mercy because God willed, God made a decision out of his very character to send Jesus to die for our sins and to rise for our justification. It was his will, imagine, just, just come to grips with that, it was his will to crush his son. How would God make that decision? Only if that decision is consistent with his nature and consistent with his character. And his character is mercy. His nature is mercy. And to give us mercy, it was pleasing to him to crush his own son, to give this mercy. It was not an accident that Jesus died on the cross. It was appointed by God to do that. It was a, that tree was appointed by God. Those soldiers were appointed by God. By the foreknowledge of God, that happened. 
God's mercy is a free, sovereign mercy because God freely, freely, sovereignly chose to give life and forgiveness to anyone who believes in Jesus. This is God's free choice. He didn't have to forgive us. But he says anybody who places his faith, her faith in Jesus will receive my mercy. God's mercy is an active mercy because Jesus came to us. He died for us while we were still God's enemies. We were still sinners. He loved us before we loved him. God's mercy is a rich mercy. It is sufficient, even abundant, because an infinite sacrifice was offered on the cross of Jesus, and an eternal life was earned in the resurrection of the Son of God. So when God says, there's enough mercy for you, what he's saying is, an infinite person died for you so that you have enough mercy. When God says you have enough mercy, he says, an eternal life is given to you. And so there's always a supply of mercy for you. Friends, his mercies are new every morning because, it's Je- because Jesus died for every morning, because he died for every day, because he died for every evening and every night. And that sacrifice releases that mercy into your life. There's no part of your existence that is not covered by his mercy. His mercy is reliable because it's blood-soaked and cross-shaped and Jesus-named mercy. That's why you can trust it. Because Jesus died and rose again. Because it's Jesus who did that. His blood seals God's commitment to us. And that mercy doesn't run out. It doesn't disappear. Romans 8 says, what then shall we say to these things, these awful things that are happening in our lives, including our doubts, including suffering, including our anger and stubbornness and all that we bring to God? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he's for us in Christ, who can be against us? know anybody bigger than God? Anybody more powerful than God? God is already on our side in Christ. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. This is logic. God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he gave you the most important thing that he had, if it pleased him to crush his son for you, why would he withhold anything good, any mercy from you? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Even now, he's interceding for us. So what do we say to these things? We say mercy never runs out. God is a merciful and a gracious God, and I can trust it. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. And because of this mercy in Christ, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because that throne of grace is the blood-soaked mercy seat. And so when we go to that, we will receive mercy, and we will find grace to help 
in time of need. And so we leave this book of Jonah the way I think it's meant to be left, and that is there's a question. There's no answer. Jonah doesn't answer the question. The book leaves us with the question. Now, presumably, Jonah recorded all this for us so we would know what happened to him. As stubborn and angry as he was, he knew this was going to be helpful to us. And so he leaves the book. The end of the book is a question. And the question is, God is asking Jonah, why do you think I wouldn't be merciful to this great city of Nineveh? And the question to us is, what are we going to do with God's mercy? What are we going to do with it? We come face to face with him, this merciful God who in Christ has redeemed us and in, in the Holy Spirit continues to counsel us. So what do we do? How do we respond? And we have one more object lesson to finish our reflection on these matters, and that is the table of the Lord. The table of the Lord has broken pieces of bread and divided cups of juice. And when you come to it, the object lesson is, look how much God loves you. Look how merciful God is to you. Don't you think you should soak it in, take it in? Don't you think you should extend it to other people? That's the response. You take it in and you extend it to anybody that God has placed in your life. 